This week on Wealth Track, Wall Street legend Charles Ellis takes us through the latest lessons learned from his newly updated classic Winning the Losers game. Now, the talent pool of people who are involved in investment management keeps going up. The Darwinian process by which the guys who aren't really, really good get weeded out keeps getting tougher and tougher. So the game gets harder and harder and harder and harder until now it's basically baked in that it's going to be impossible is too strong a word, but very, very unlikely that anybody, any particular manager will do as well or better than their benchmark. His timeless advice this week on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, ClearBridge Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. Can investing be simple? Can we stop worrying about what's happening on Wall Street in Washington with Fed policy? inflation, corporate earnings, antitrust actions against big tech? Can we just get on with our lives and still invest successfully? Well, according to this week's guest, the answer is yes, and we shouldn't even care what the market is doing. What should we care about and how should we invest? That is the focus of this week's exclusive WealthTrack interview. Our guest is Charles Ellis, the author of the investment classic Winning the Losers Game. It is also Ellis's 17th book on top of numerous other trailblazing publications. Ellis is a globally recognized financial thought leader, investment consultant, and advisor to governments, institutions, and endowments. He is the former chairman of Yale's investment committee that oversaw the university's huge and successful endowment. And he has taught investment management for years at Yale, Harvard, and Princeton. He also cares deeply about helping investors succeed. And as the title of his investment classic says, winning the loser's game. My first question, why does he describe investing as a loser's game? Well, candidly, it is. And then it's helpful, obviously, to describe, well, okay, what is a loser's game? And we all owe a debt of gratitude to Simon Ramo. Uh, he was a brilliant human being. He invented TRW, or Thompson Ramo Wooldridge, and that organization was the main contractor for the space program. So he was a leader in space. He also happened to be a gifted musician, and with three professionals from the Los Angeles Symphony Orchestra, he played professional quartets. And he was really good at that, and he was a very good tennis player. And being a scientist, instead of watching tennis the way most of us do, he had ways of making things really interesting by looking at them differently. What he did is, instead of keeping the game score, he said, I'm going to count winning and losing. And he found very quickly that most games are determined not by the winner, but by the loser, the outcome. So when somebody comes to you and you're coming off the court at the local club and they say, who won? That's the wrong question. They should have said, who lost? Because the loser was in control, except for the very good tennis players. And if you're watching Wimbledon, you see superb tennis players 
and they win. They win by putting the ball way over to the left, way over to the right, way over to the left, way over to the right, drop shot up front, back deep into the court, and they never make a mistake to speak of. They win points. But the rest of us tend to double fault from time to time. We hit the ball in the net from time to time. We hit out of bounds from time to time. And sometimes we lay up such an easy shot for the opponent that we really gave it away. And so the outcome for professionals might be 90% of the points are won. But for amateurs, 90% of the points are lost. And if you look at investing, the outcomes are dreadful. And why is that? It's because of the behavior of human beings like you and me and almost everybody else. Investing is a game, it's a loser's game because investors make so many mistakes while investing? Since we're human beings, we ought to recognize that if we assert ourselves and try to do better, we're almost sure to do worse. And so one thing to do is to recognize the reality and then deal with that reality. Once you know what the problem is, you've got a chance of solving it. So winning the loser's game is a matter of thinking about how can you avoid the losing and concentrate on doing things that would actually, actually do great good for you. So tell us, therefore, um, how do we avoid the losing? Well, first to recognize reality, I'm going to take a minute and just say, if you look at long-term investing, and the best data we've got extends back now 15 years, if you look at the mutual funds and say, ooh, gee, those are very talented people. They've got a lot of investment technology. They've got wonderful flow of information coming their way. They know all kinds of stuff all the time. And they've chosen to be this particular kind of investment manager because that's what mutual funds are defined by. What is your long-term objective? They must, a large fraction of them must be winning very definitely. That's not true. And it's not anywhere near true. The reality is, 89% fall short of their chosen objective. Even after they had complete free choices to who do you want to have on your team, how many decisions you want to make, how fast you want to make changes, how would you like to change your strategy or your uh, portfolio mix. They've got all kinds of freedoms to do whatever they really want to do. Even then, 89% over a 10-year period fall short. And when they fall short, candidly, they fall short by a great deal more than those who happen to come out ahead, come out ahead. And then the second thing is if you said, well, let's take the top 10% then. Well, unfortunately, about 90% of them in the next 15 years are going to have the same experience of falling short. And falling short, Charlie, means not beating your chosen benchmark. That's the objective you're talking about, right? You bet. You bet. I want to be a small cap growth manager, take a small cap growth index, and how do you do? I want to be a large cap value manager, okay, fine, take that index, how do you do? Part of it is the cost of operation, Right. part of it is the fees, and those are two formidable hurdles to overcome when the difficulty of overcoming is so very great. And as you and I have talked in the past, that has continued to develop and develop and develop it. The factors individually and the collective consequences have just been amazing. But they're not friendly. They're very, they make it harder and harder and harder. And that's, you know, one of the things, this is the eighth edition of winning the loser's game. So congratulations on that. 
You've updated each edition. So what are the updates? The data keeps, keeps getting stronger and stronger. And the data I'm talking about is what is the data that shows you how the markets are changing? The amount of trading that is done keeps going up. The fraction of that trading that is done by expert professionals with every kind of information keeps going up. The regulations don't keep going up, but the, they do tend to layer up and get stronger and stronger, and nothing goes the other way. Uh, the talent pool of people who are involved in investment management keeps going up. The Darwinian process by which the guys who aren't really, really good get weeded out keeps getting tougher and tougher. So the game gets harder and harder and harder and harder until now it's basically baked in that it's going to be impossible is too strong a word, but very, very unlikely that anybody, any particular manager will do as well or better than their benchmark. And then, of course, it's very, very unlikely that any of us would choose which was the right manager to select. So if you combine our difficulty of selection and their difficulty of implementation and the huge difficulty of the process of trying to outsmart all the other guys who know everything you know, it gets to be formidable and close enough to impossible so any rational person would say, well, I don't want to go there. You can do it the other way around, you know. You should say, if everybody were indexing or large numbers of people were indexing, what would you offer to get them to come out of that and go to an active manager? Well, let's see. Uh, the performance is terrible, 89% failure rate. And when the failure rate happens, so slugging average is even worse because when failure rate happens, it happens really formidably. Uh, taxes don't get counted in the data that I'm citing, but that's right. an additional drag, okay? You know, you know, what's, to, what's to recommend? Well, higher fees. That often is an attracting characteristic on the idea that if you pay a lot, it must be worth a lot. In this case, that doesn't happen to be true. The higher fees don't help at all. Low fees would help because you have to recover those fees. And then, you know, it's, it's a dreadful reality. So many people have been attracted to be in the investment management business. And if you happen to come, as I did in the early 1960s, it was relatively easy to do better than the competition. But then the competition got better and better and better and better and better. And they got more and more equalized because we all have the same information flows now. Used to be you could get really good competitive information that other people didn't have or didn't have it for another six months. So you had plenty of time to do something with it. Or you could get really sophisticated computer equipment. Well, now everybody's got great computer equipment. Everybody's got a Bloomberg terminal. Often people have them at home and at work because they want to be able to access all that extraordinary amount of information. And pretty soon you get to the point where, and the government has a rule that if a company is listed and it gives you any information that might be useful from an investment point of view, they got to give all the rest of it that same information at the same time. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's really tough out there. Yeah. So a couple of responses. Uh, number one, why is beating an index the end-all, be-all? Why should it be? If I'm an, an individual investor, for instance, I'm investing for the long term. I mean, I have other considerations. Uh, you know, number one, maybe I really like dividends. And so I want to, in, 
you know, invest with a manager that uh, that invests in dividend paying stocks. Maybe I only want to invest in in top quality companies. And I think 30 percent of the Russell 2000, for instance, the companies in that index uh, don't make any money. So I want to be more selective than that. There is, a, you know, a, ESG investing is becoming much more popular. I, I want to invest in companies that follow the policies that match my values. I mean, there are all sorts of things that I want to do uh, that, I, that I won't find in an index. Oh, so, yes, you can. Okay. If you look at the ETFs and index funds as basically the same, just delivered in a slightly different form. The variety of choice, the range of choices, you can have virtually anything you want. If you can define it, you can have it. And you're actually another part of what you were doing, in my view, is starting where I think the greatest value adding has to be. Mm-hmm. And that's people look at the market and say, it's got to be there. I'm going to find something inside the market. That's not the answer. The real answer is, who are you? What are you trying to accomplish? What do you care about? What do you want to avoid? You are the most important part of this equation, not the market. And you can have anything you want in the market, and you can have it in indexing, you can have it active management, your choice. But it, let's assume that you pick indexing. There are now more indexes than there are stocks in the world. And index matching by ETFs and index funds, it's done everywhere there's anything like an appetite. So that pretty much you can have anything you want as a defined type of investing by indexing. All you have to do is look a little bit carefully to find it. And it doesn't right. take more than an hour to find out what you can have that would match up to what you really want. The really important part of investing is knowing who you are and what you're trying to accomplish and then going about it in a serious-minded way and you can have it. I read a wonderful uh, interview that you did many years ago uh, with Jason Zweig uh, before he was at the Wall Street Journal. And one of the things that you told him is that everybody, you know, everybody should have a, a kind of an investment policy. That's what you recommend to endowments and pension funds that you consult with and advise. But that individuals should have a financial plan. When you say know who you are, what your objectives are, how do we do that? What kind of questions should we be asking ourselves? How much time do you have is the most important single question. Where are you in life? Yeah. You know, I'm now sad to say, but happy to say it. I'm 83. And so great, Charlie. Charlie, I thought you're supposed to own your age in bonds. You should be all all in bonds. Well, first of all, the age in bonds is a terrible idea and should be certainly put aside. Most people should come nowhere near it. The second thing is, I'm not investing for me. I'm not investing for Linda. I'm investing for my grandchildren because I've been able to save enough and build up by, by investing sensibly. Nothing really magical, but enough so that we're okay and we can pass that on. I'm still working for a living and if travel restrictions get lifted, I'll be back earning ample to be able to cover our expenses on a regular basis. So how long do we have for that money to before it gets spent? And that's the only important question. If you can't answer that question, you're in real trouble. If you do answer that, you're halfway home. And I recognize it's only halfway, but you are halfway home. 
because you can figure out, well, therefore I should be doing this, this, and this. Our horizon is for four kids who are average age of 14 and two kids whose average age is one. <laughs> and that's a long, that's long, a long, long term time. horizon. Right. To those kids, when they get to their spending years, when they're 40, 50, 60, 70, are they going to care about what happened in and around this period? They might be interested a little bit curious as to what happened around COVID, but they won't be sure they've got the dates right. They couldn't care less about what the stock market was doing, and they shouldn't. Because if you're a long-term investor and you're not going to be spending for quite a long time, you should be cool, calm, and collected about taking interim, short-term market fluctuations and stop calling them risk because the big risk is not how's it going today. The big risk is are you in the wrong ballpark? Are you heading the wrong direction? So stocks are clearly in the, uh, one of the right ballparks, right? You're saying bonds really are not because of interest rates being historically low. Generality about bonds is we now have bonds that decent bonds, really high grade bonds, which is all any B should be investing in return after adjusting for inflation, zero. Right. So that doesn't look like an investment to me. That looks like a parking space at best. And if you know you're going to spend the money in two or three years on some big adventure, like buying a home or sending kids off to school, I could understand it, that you'd want to be sure it's safe money. That's different. You're just storing it. But if you're trying to be an investor, bonds don't make any sense at all today. And then the second thing I would hold a very negative feeling on bonds in general is back to the put your age in bonds. Well, let's assume you're 30 years old and you've just finished an MBA at a decent business school and you're married to somebody who's got an interest in having a career too and probably also went to business school. What are you going to be doing in terms of that would make any sense for bonds? Well, you're going to have such a nice earnings capacity that you don't need to have safety in the short run. You're looking for success in the long run. So you care mostly about the long-term average rate of return. That takes you pretty far away from bonds. Uh, and then if you look at the portfolio, most of us look at, you know, we get a little bitty little focus in on the stocks and bonds in our specific securities or investment portfolio. And that's not the total picture got to pay attention to the total picture. And the total picture financially is, candidly, quite different. First of all, for people who own a home, that home value is part of their total portfolio. I recognize they're not going to sell this home tomorrow or next week, but it is one of the assets they could sell if need be, and they've made an investment in that value. Right. So they've that's a good investment. Sure. You consider a home as a, as a diversifier, number one, and it's it's a good investment for most people if you hold it long term? No, it's actually a good consumer good. Uh, okay. It, the value is maintained, but nobody really makes money in housing unless they happen to buy in at a cyclical low and sell out at a cyclical high. People feel they made a lot of money, but if you did the math correctly, they'll wind up saying, you know, okay, but it didn't make it. it Return the money that we put in. So it's a stable asset. All right. So is Social Security, a stable asset. And if you do the calculation on how much is Social Security worth, 
it's quite a great deal of asset value to have an, an annuity coming from the federal government that lasts as long as you live. That's a, that's a real bargain deal. It and is. That should be part of your thinking. And then if you're any, anything under 65, if you, your biggest asset may very well be your ability to earn money. And if you look at your children and mine or my grandchildren, that intellectual property or IP is huge as a fraction of their total portfolio. And they can estimate roughly how it's going to go in their industry over time. If they're good, if they do work hard and they stay with it, pretty much they can get a good ballpark. That is a stunning asset value. And so when you're looking at your securities portfolio, it's a nice, important component of what is a really important total picture. But you ought to do yourself a favor and recognize the total picture. And if you do that, boy, it's very hard to justify also owning bonds in that context. How much should we pay attention to our stock portfolio versus all of the other assets that you just talked about? Well, uh, easy shot for me, and I I recognize it, it makes me laugh every time I think about it. Uh, Back in the early 1970s, I made a serious commitment to one stock, Berkshire Hathaway. And I've owned it ever since. And I'm a great, great fan of Warren Buffett and a deep believer that he has really figured out so much about investing and taught it to the people who run his operating companies and the people who invest with him. It's a, it's a profound proposition in my mind. Uh, the part that I think is funny is I check the price of Berkshire Hathaway almost every day. <laughs> and she said, well, have you ever thought about selling it? Of course not. Well, how many years do you have to wait before you get there? Till I die. Well, you've made it already 50 years and you're still checking the price every day? Yeah, it's just one of those things. I, I don't take it seriously and I don't check the price of any other stock. That's just the only one I do just to see how we're doing. And it's way ahead of what I would have dreamed of and so on and so on. But the same thing is I approach that I would take to the stock market in the total picture context. Home, intellectual property, social security, all those different components. Uh, what happens in one small part just doesn't matter. Charlie, speaking of beating your benchmark, well, Warren Buffett has not consistently beaten the benchmark either. So why should that be, you know, again, the end-all, be-all? Aren't there other things that matter? Integrity, honesty. Yes. <laughs> not doing something really stupid, uh, not doing something venal, and not doing something that you're ashamed of later right. on. But you want to invest with people or firms that have integrity, that you know, that share your cultural values. I mean, I think those are more important than just beating an index. And the I would only. Agree with you about, I happen to agree with you about that, but that's easy because the the leading index manager has high integrity, and that's Vanguard. Vanguard. And you were on the board of Vanguard for quite a while. I was on the board uh, for many years, was a consultant to Vanguard before I joined the board, and I've been an investor with Vanguard for, gee, 40 years. All right. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. What should we all own some of at this point? Global Equity Index. That simple. It, and it doesn't matter what the period is, what Mr. Market's offering you in a global market index. 
it depends on back to time again. If you've got a short period of time, then you get a different answer. If you've got an intermediate period of time, like seven or eight years, 10 years, it might have a different answer. If you're at all long-term in how much time is going to be between now and when you're going to spend the money that's invested, the longer it is, the more sure I am that what you should do is index and global and concentrate on getting an index from a really gifted manager at low cost. The one thing I want to really emphasize is it is not what attracts most of us easiest is let me see if I could play this and see if I could pick a stock that would do well. And I recognize all of us have that kind of a, wouldn't it be fun to find one? But the really important work is not that. And the reality is that doing that kind of work is really ridiculously difficult to do. And the important work is finding out who are you and what would work well for you over the long time to achieve the values you really care about. And that can be entirely done by indexing and the index selections can be entirely done in a morning, any weekend of the year. And you can go back and review it five years, 10 years, 20 years, whenever you think is an appropriate thing to do. And that would be fine. But this is one of those cases where less is more and fiddling with it and messing around is probably going to get you to do something that's not on average going to be all that smart. I think you called it benign neglect at one point. Yes. So, Charlie Ellis, congratulations on the eighth edition of Winning the Losers Game. Thank you so much for joining us once again on Wealth Track. Great to be with you, Consuelo. Thanks a lot. At the close of every Wealth Track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. Well, this week's action point is not going to surprise you, and it's one I have made before. It is Read Winning the Losers Game by Charlie Ellis. There is a reason it is in its eighth edition, updated to reflect the financial crises and challenges we have faced since its last iteration in 2017. But the core of the message, which we just discussed at length, remains the same. You win in investing by not losing through avoidable mistakes, which is why this is a classic with timeless advice for most of us. Well, next week, veteran investment strategist Ed Yardeni discusses one of his favorite pursuits described in the title of his new book, Fed watching for fun and profit. On this week's extra feature, the lessons Charlie Ellis is taking away from his experience sheltering in place. Please continue to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.